This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. With me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hi, Max. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. And who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Well, we have Samantha Sanabas on the 3D Pod today. Uh, she's a co-founder of Re3D, uh, which is kind of a social enterprise, uh, which is using kind of local manufacturing, recycled materials. And, uh, well, she used to be like a... a, a, a you know, a serial entrepreneur, but now she's doing using 3D printing as one of her tools in her toolkit is doing much more social enterprise, good for humanity kind of thing. And she uh, has done a lot of stuff. You know, she's she's done a lot of stuff before that uh, she was an entrepreneur in residence. Uh, uh, she was working at the NASA Johnson Space Center, Life Sciences Directorate. Uh, uh, she sell, sold her startup and yeah, generally lots and lots of roles before ending up in 3D print land. Uh, and uh, yeah, and Re3D is essentially trying to make, you know, 3D printing a little bit more human size, more, uh, you know, human scale and, uh, you know, working on recycled pellets and flakes and things like that. That's kind of her thing. So um, welcome to the show, Samantha. Thanks so much for having me. It's such an honor. First of all, like, like you've been like kind of all over the place. Have you kind of, do you <laughs> like doing different things? Is that, uh, is that, is that where you're, uh, what's, what's always important to you or? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. Um, honestly, it's probably out of uh, necessity as I was hustling through college and with um, <laughs> my first startup that I accidentally started um, based off of a DARPA grant when I was an undergrad. But um, yeah, I, I would say, you know, the overarching theme um, is um, since I could talk, I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, and mm-hmm. if you drill into the bios for astronauts, they are pretty eclectic people that have done a lot. So in in um, my aspiration to um, apply a few times and scrapbook their rejection card. Um, I took on a lot of hats, whether it was firefighting or being an officer in the Air Force um, or um, volunteering and doing a lot of education and outreach. Well, you were also a major in the Mississippi Air National Guard, right? Yes, sir. I am. Uh, well, we are recruiting amazing. if anyone's interested. <laughs> that is, that is a major sounds very like that's like you've been uh, you've been working for them or working with them. That's uh, for like over twelve years now. The major, what does that mean? Like a major, it sounds incredibly senior. So what does that mean actually day to day? Let's say. Well, just just to back to you, my dog's a major too. He's a retired military working dog, and uh-huh. he had to be one rank higher than his uh, handler, who was a captain. So <laughs> both me and the dog are. <laughs> so you know, it's, okay. um, so you does have, he get the um, pension because this is a good deal then. Um, yeah. yeah, I have. Sorry, I don't want to go too when far. When the captain, the they made me salute you, him. <laughs> yeah, yeah I was that was my question. Do you have to salute a dog? <laughs> I do salute. It's uh, Major Patty on Instagram. They, uh, the military had me create an account so all his friends could follow him. <laughs> wow. Okay, okay. <laughs> That's good. But, you know, just just to keep you grounded. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> but uh, there's there's company grade officers, which are usually in, in the yeah. Air Force, Navy likes to do things their own way, but um, in the U.S., uh, there's uh, three ranks second, first lieutenant, and captain. And then you get into the the field grade officers, which are major, uh, Mm -hmm. lieutenant, colonel, colonel. So it's kind of like I'm I'm the low man on the totem pole in that group. So I'm learning Mm -hmm. how to, you know, be be a better leader, to make decisions, to prioritize, which honestly Mm -hmm. is such a blessing right now with, um, as you know, um, you know, running a global um, 3D printing company, because um, it's it's just been really good training um, to help support the pandemic um, complications. Okay, and why should I join the National Guard? I'm Dutch, so I can't. But for other people, <laughs> you are recruiting, so try to pitch it to us. No, right? you can take non-citizens. I thought non-citizens could join the military. Really? Oh, yeah, you can become a citizen that way. Yeah, through that. Really? That's how it's yeah. one of the okay. past citizenship. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's okay. actually really cool. My, my brother was in the Navy and, and had his boot camp graduation. That day, yeah. um, a, a number of people became U.S. citizens that day, which was pretty, pretty inspiring to watch. In fact, I think um, yeah. that's how my grandfather became a U.S. citizen as well. Really? Okay, okay, okay. So that's a yeah. military tradition. You, you you have that as well. But so why specifically would 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 some should somebody join the Mississippi Air National Guard? <laughs> oh, I love this. Um, well, first of all, uh, in Mississippi, you know, a lot of people um, don't don't appreciate all the culture it has to offer. But the food is awesome. Every drill I learn about a new type of um, I'm a vegetarian. New type of vegetable. Um, really warm people um, and uh, just so kind. And then. The cool thing about being a guardsman, um, like myself, is 
you get to be in a, in a team of people, uh, many of whom have outside jobs like I do, and just a, a wealth of experience and insight from all walks of life. A lot of us, like like me, um, fly in or drive in for drills. So from different geographies and, and backgrounds. Um, and then you get to you know, actually build build your network um, as you brainstorm on the Air Force mission. But in the Air Force, we like to think we're the best and in the Air National Guard and um, we're the coolest. Uh, but, you know, we, we get to work on um, really interesting problem sets and learn about planes and um, technology. Um, and uh, yeah, to, in our mission, we're focused on disaster response. So it's a real privilege to um, help um, the response, you know, say when a hurricane hits in the U.S. and, and to help help mm-hmm. communities uh, respond to that. Okay. And you're saying it has helped you be a better like leader, let's say, right? I hope so. Yeah. Um, and I think so. Um, you know, again, especially in the, in the last three years, um, you know, it's impossible. There's a lot of uncertainty. And, and in the Air Force and in officer school, you know, you're trained to deal with ambiguous situations and how to prioritize and recognizing sometimes not everything can get done in a day and, and trying to figure out what's most important um, and how to work, you know, with diverse teams and um, also um, in the Air Force and in, in the way the U.S. defense is structured, you know, there's not just one place everything's at. It's kind of spread out, right, globally. So um, it gives you an opportunity to think about, you know, how you're going to communicate across geographies and um function and and that's a lot of what i experienced at re3d too okay okay well, that, that seems exciting so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, so I assume so there are big toys to play with too like giant 3d printers <laughs> yeah it's kind of cool not gonna lie <laughs> but, but you started very much with this kind of like very biosenses very tech heavy startup right so artificial bone mm-hmm. marrow. that sounds mm-hmm. uh like it could be a quite a, a tough challenge then you went in another biotech kind of company, um, and then you went to work for the NASA Human Health and Performance Center as a strategist at NASA Johnson. That, that seemed like that's how was what was that like to go on the one hand to be a founder of two, uh, founder and associate of two startups, and all of a sudden to go to like a, a working for you know the NASA and stuff like that. That's a much much bigger organization. There was a little bit of a culture shock um, for, for context. Um, um, you know, I kind of act, I'm not, you know, that smart or brilliant. I was, I'm, I'm kind of a happenstance of um, just good people and, and timing. So the, the first startup um, was really gracious and gave me a lot of opportunity to contribute to a, um, a DARPA grant they had to create this artificial immune system. And, and that ended up working out. So um, then we had the opportunity afterwards to went, um, went, spin, spin out that technology. When you say it worked out, you went through all three three rounds on the DARPA grant? Yeah, yeah. And um, oh, this cool. is how, uh, how <laughs> aware I was. Uh, they said we had made it to phase three. And, and, um, and I said, what's that? And they said, commercialization. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and so <laughs> my former boss and I um, start, started the company. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. So we were, you know, right. under budgeted and ahead of the milestones. And, um, <laughs> and um, so uh, we had the exclusive worldwide license and got a few patents and then um, started that during the last recession. Um, and I'll, you know, that, that's something that you would fundraise for. And um, there was kind yeah. of a freeze in that in the Midwest. And um, unfortunately, the, the recession really hit um, Detroit hard early. Mm. Um, so that's, that's how I ended up in Texas. In parallel, again, always wanted to be an astronaut. Um, right. I had heard about, this thing. <laughs> to Johnson. Yeah, I'd heard about um, <laughs> this thing called Microgravity University, where you could design an experiment to fly in the Vomit Comet. So um, I promptly got rejected the first time for being unrealistic. Uh, no surprise. Now that I'm an entrepreneur, I recognize that. But they gave me some mentorship because uh, they liked the idea. And um, and then I made it in the second time. And that's why I extended my undergraduate experience um, and collected another couple degrees so I could still be eligible and fly fly that experiment. It was through that that they um, identified some, some participants from the summer I did that that um, could advocate, not lobby on Capitol Hill on behalf of NASA and share our story and how it benefited us. And I made some friends in space life sciences, and they very kindly um, invited me to work for them um, when they heard Re3D, was, or excuse me, uh, Bioflow was selling, uh, the startup was selling, because, um, I, again, dumb luck, uh, <laughs> they, uh, the, the innovation um, ecosystem was just kind of standing up at that time, and citizen science, and 
um, thinking about industry collaboration. And so they had decided in Space Life Sciences, who was an early mover in that dialogue, that they would really like to have someone who was under 30, who had sold a life science company and loved space. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Just, so it was again. like designed just for you. Um, yeah. Like. yeah. So going back to it, it was definitely, you know, I was really excited about the role and um, met some amazing humans, some of whom founded Re3D with me, co-founded Re3D with me. But um, yeah, it was just, just time and place. <laughs> <laughs> That's I like cool. how you, everybody's always really serious about the career if they do a lot of stuff like you did. And you kind of make it look like it's just, you know, blundering through. It's all random. <laughs> it's a, it's yeah, like yeah, I, I'm sure you're like, underselling oh, yeah, yourself. hard thing, and then I got a couple of degrees, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's how it happened. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. And how is, how is the vomit comment thing, by the way? You skipped over that really quickly. Was, is that fun? Or is yeah. that just not fun? <laughs> No, it was, it was really great. Um, I had the opportunity to um, mentor um, some students to continue to fly that experiment a couple more times. Um, and um, so I've done, a f- I've had the opportunity to pull a few loops and um, I tried to, you know, break the record for not vomiting. So they actually drug you up. That's what you, that's what you don't know. Um, but, um, you know, and everyone takes it, even the photographers. But um, I, like an anti- we had a saying, yeah, it's like an up. upper and a downer. Oh, yeah. But we said a, a, the saying was, if it doesn't go past the teeth, it doesn't count. So I was determined, you know, I wanted to prove myself but, to grit it out. <laughs> oh, yeah. and, and you did not, huh? <laughs> I, I did not. But I, yeah, yeah, I feel like no I'll, one does that. Right? the details on the podcast. <laughs> My colleague has one, and uh, we would, I would always hear stories from those that got to, to go in it all the time. It's, uh, it's really great. And they and now, through zero, thanks to Zero-G, you know, there's, there's an opportunity to even, you know, as a, a civilian, um, do it, yeah. to, to fly in one. So, yeah, I highly recommend it. If, if you haven't done it, you should. It, it could be the drugs, but it, if you've ever <laughs> um, flown in your sleep, that's what it feels like. Cool. All right, that's exciting. Um, okay, so and then uh, then you did this thing called like this open innovation NASA social entrepreneur evidence. Sounds super fun, right? So what what and yeah. the, what did that, what what was that, that actually, and how do I get that? Actually, do it. Yeah, it was a lot of things. I made a, a newsletter that would go in the the bathroom stalls across Johnson Space Center. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was called the, the the Innovation Press. I'm trying to remember what it was called. Um, all the way to um, you know standing up a, a down they call it a down day um, on the center to let everyone in, in their in their silo and and in their sector share what they've been doing with the other nerds um, to build relationships to um, standing up. Um, Helping, you know, um, support the the chapter and then the the organization that stood up to um, facilitate public private um, partnerships and what they called at the time different themes under that. And you know, I'd, I've always volunteered a lot and um, did 4-H for 27 years. And uh, at that time, I was doing a lot of microfinance stuff, Opportunity International, and volunteering with Engineers Without Borders, NASA Justice Space Center. So it's not too surprising that I really uh, one was fascinated by the biomimicry. Uh, theme for obvious reasons, but also this concept of like um, translating what we learned because I was seeing it in Engineers Without Borders, NASA Johnson Space Center, seeing what we learned living and working in space and how it could help people in, in different environments globally. Um, and it was through that um, I met our now advisor, Pascal Finette, keeps a great blog called The Heretic. Um, so you should check it out if you haven't. Um, and other peers that ended up co-founding Re3D. Um, Turns out, you know, there are a lot of people with, with that heart and passion as well. Okay, okay. So tell us a little bit about Re3D, because that's a very different thing than usually we have people on from companies or universities and stuff. So this is a very different animal inside. <laughs> yeah, um, it is. Uh, we, ha- we definitely have a distinct uh, culture. So yeah, Re3D, um, it's just, uh, um, as, as a brand, you know, it's this uh, really um, cool group of uh, amazing humans who are just passionate about thinking about how to create more access to 3D printing. And it really started, you know, again, when we were volunteering with um, Engineers Without Borders, NASA Johnson Space Center in um, Uganda, uh, well, visiting Uganda and then volunteering in Rwanda, Nicaragua, and, and supporting a project in Mexico. And just realizing that, you know, we were, we were investing a lot of lift in the time and um, in bringing in tools or buying them on site and fundraising for it. 
and helping support uh, local solutions. Um, but the the people we met, you know, were just really brilliant and and capable, and were interested in not being so dependent on you know outside aid or a big brand or a government. And um, so we had a lot of conversations like that through different groups of friends who are kind of loosely connected through NASA and our peers. And over time, what that um, spun out was what it. We weren't sure if it was going to be a spin-out of Engineers Without Borders NASA Johnson Space Center or maybe part of like the theme of what was emerging at NASA at the time. But we started to fixate on 3D printing. My uh, co-founder, Matthew, had uh, just gotten uh, back to Brooks' uh, printer bot and had made a shark uh, clip, at, you know, as Thingiverse was standing up. And, and he's in, having been in manufacturing my whole life, when my first job was in a factory in Detroit, my family still works in, in factories in Detroit and, um, you know, having invented a hardware device previously. I'm, I'm obviously really passionate about hardware. And um, so we started to think about what it would look like if 3D printers um, at the time, similar to what field writing and a number of our peers in the ecosystem now were thinking about back then. What if 3D printers were more available to our peers so they could be more independent? I was really fortunate at the time with NASA. I think that's when I was transitioning to that, the headquarters role, which is the derivation of the JSC role. Um, I had the, the honor of doing a lot of surveys and participating in a lot of um, national and international groups that think about aid and resiliency. And so through that, that network and our grassroots contacts through Opportunity International and Engineers Without Borders, we started to survey what would be the potential end users. And, and they said, you know, 3D printers are super cool, but uh, I'm not going to make a shark clip or a chip clip. You know, I'm going to make or an iPhone case. I want to make a birthing stool, a lower limb prosthetic, a tool, um, a composting toilet, something more functional. I've always just always been really passionate about um, toilets and sanitation and um, how it relates to economic development. So thinking I'm funny, um, I was like, well, we're going to make a a toilet size uh, 3D printer. And our vision was to keep it open source. So there was a series of blogs through NASA and Engineers Without Borders where we kind of started exploring this idea with peers in the community. And then um, I applied to a couple contacts contest there was uh you might recall tech for trade it became tech for trade but there was a there was a contest oh shucks i forget which one it was now in in 2011 or 2012 where you're to to make a large object and um and matt rogie won with a with a canoe he printed from milk jugs so there are people globally doing things that really inspired us and so um we didn't win any of them but coincidentally you may recall um instructables and jack daniels somehow paired up I think it was 2012 for the um, Jack Daniels Independence Day project with Instructables. And it was like, what are you going to do to create independence and win $25,000 in a whiskey barrel? And we saw that as a vehicle maybe to prototype this. So we made a very eclectic video flushing a toilet uh, with some inappropriate language and and our vision. And we were a finalist in that. And that connected us to a broader global community. (laughs) We didn't win the whiskey barrel, but it did give us motivation. And, And then we heard about Startup Chile, which is a program. It's still open if you're interested. Message me on LinkedIn. I can give you some feedback on the application process. But um, you you get forty thousand dollars. You get a small bank to um, start or scale your your concept in Latin America. What we didn't know at the time is most people had real companies, uh, but the organizers, which is done as part of Corfo, part of the um, the President's Innovation Initiative, really liked the idea of getting someone to quit their job that worked at NASA or supported NASA to start a company. So um, we were selected, and uh, that's that's that began the exodus and the collaboration between us to have a company. Coincidentally, when I when I landed in Chile, I went first with, with Brooks Printerbot and my my backpack to try and explain to people what 3D printing was and our, our bigger idea. Um, we heard that they were going to have a booth at South by Southwest um, that year, which was quite big. And I, what I didn't know too is Bree Pettis was, was speaking at South by. And so um, I said, hey, if my co-founder can invent a large format 3D printer that's open source for under $10,000 in eight weeks, can we launch it at South by on Kickstarter? Because but I would bring people into NASA that had successful Kickstarter campaigns. It just seemed like that was the way to go with 3D printing at the time and Forum had done really well. So um, they're like, yeah, right. If you can do it, you can have a booth. And it was right in front of the doors. It opens. Who comes in? The media, which I forgot about. Um, <laughs> and I'm still arguing. We built that whole campaign without the name Gigabot because we were all fighting over it. I'm in Chile building the campaign. Matthew is doing the printer. Chris was trying to shoot it in his living room. It's terrible if you look it up. It shows that you can have a really ugly campaign and manage, but um, 
And uh, we started this hashtag, damn you, Amazon payments, because at that time we couldn't get the approvals and the payment thing to link and, and it's all this churn. Uh, and yeah, that t- it, t- it takes a few weeks. That part does actually take a few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> we were like pushing that in 2013, but Matthew realizes the printer's too big to get out of the door of his living room. So he said, take it all apart. I think he throws it in his power wagon, drives it over to Austin. The team, uh, while I'm still in Chile, is is putting the thing together. and. TechCrunch walks in, you know, media comes first and says 3D printing just got bigger than a bread box on their blog um, and links to the Kickstarter campaign and the Mashable and Gadget. Um, unfortunately, we didn't have y'all at that time. Um, and, and, uh, <laughs> and we were funded in 27 hours and instantly in 23 countries. And Matthew's like, I, I can't make these out of my living room. And what we didn't realize is, well, not a single person in Muganero, Rwanda, um, back to the campaign, Kickstarter was calling us. Had a good relationship. Had a good relationship with some of the staff for a while, um, saying they're getting inundated with inquiries because it was one of the higher dollar rewards that had ever been pushed on there um, <laughs> from big companies or hospitals saying, "How do I create a Kickstarter account so I can buy this product?" <laughs> so, um, oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so that that's how we accidentally start, or accidentally had the privilege of participating in this venture as well. Fair enough. Okay, so cool. how did you end up then? Because a lot of 3D printing companies failed exactly at this point, right? Yes. Uh, yes. So um, how did you manage to not fail the Kickstarter, right? Um, you know, I, there's a lot of things we could have done better, and I'm sure there's still threads on it you can view or Reddit um, where people gave us unsolicited feedback. But really, you know, honestly, we're still bootstrapped. And so we consider, especially that cohort of Kickstarter backers, and if, if you're listening, thank you. and Sometimes I get a little bit emotional talking about it because it's really humbling. But um, we had the opportunity to have, you know, hundreds of people telling us, you know, how, how we could do better and how we could overcome different challenges or what they were interested in printing so we could start to dial in the settings and whatever. So we were, we were really, really blessed that, um, as you know, the Kickstarter community, especially in 2013 with 3D printing, had a lot to say. Um, oh, yes. And they really guided us. <laughs> and, um, you know, some of those, the very first, um, customer that that bought a printer on uh, via Kickstarter in 2013, coincidentally was in Texas, and he brought his own personal workbenches in when um, we were standing up our office because we didn't have any furniture, right? And then we were um, took advantage of a government shutdown that started a uh, was a couple months later when the campaign closed, um, where a number of NASA employees and their kids, I probably should, well. I'll say this, but <laughs> I promise that you. I promise that with, we we respect all child labor laws. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they, we you know they we would we didn't know what we were doing. Um, but they they would help us stand up racking and organize inventory. And we we you know not knowing what we were doing, uh, we hadn't budgeted like for shipping costs and packaging materials. So they would talk to like friends that knew a teenager at a local Kroger's to get their excess boxes, and um, I would. I had a lot of consternation when I realized that um, some of our rewards were shipping and um, Kotex boxes, but, <laughs> um, you know, getting boxes and, and packing stuff up and, you know, these are brilliant people and engineers too, helping us overcome some of the product challenges as we scale or introducing us to vendors. So again, you know, there are a lot of fingerprints on the company, but it, it was really the community that helped us um, figure it out and, and still is today. How did you handle the manufacturing setup challenge? I think that's also a long <laughs> point for a lot of people. Sure. They think, I they think, think you just go to China and say, here, copy this. And it's like nothing like that. So, yeah. We actually, um, so we, what's a little bit unique about us and the, and the community, um, and we have so much respect for anyone that was there too at 2013 or before us and still is today, is um, we, we actually manufacture in-house. Um, and uh, so, so that helps us a little, I, that, that has helped us over time. I think initially people thought we were a little bit crazy because it's, it's a lot of work and um, it's more expensive. Yeah. Especially with the US salaries. But, but, but you had to still set up the supply chain network then in order to get all of those materials in. Yeah, I'm, I'm still learning. Um, Annabelle is our supply chain specialist now. So, you know, there are some components. We're actually looking to, we've been, we, we were started this exercise pre-pandemic and it just, it's kind of curious that the positioning um, is is paying off now, but um, we started an exercise to clear the Buy America standard, standard and then made in the USA because we're so focused on this concept of circularity and wanted to see if we could do it ourselves um, in, in Texas. Um, and so a lot of our components are um, 
sourced um, in the U.S. There's some that still aren't, obviously stepper motors um, and some fasteners. But I was it's, literally going to ask, like, wait, did you find a motor supplier? Because if you had, please share. Um, yeah, you know, States. we have. It's really a problem. Just, it's a it is such a problem. problem. Yeah. yeah. And we um, have started participating in some of the national level conversations with the administration on where the gaps are. And I think that's one of the, the bigger ones. I'm very vocal about it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I hope someone does it. Yeah, Not just you know, but DC, any kind of motor, like you can't, yeah, you can't find, unless it's like the most high quality motor you've ever seen in your entire life. Um, and mm-hmm. some of the gears are coming from Germany and stuff like that. Like I can't yep. find a motor. So yeah, no, it's there. There are a few components like that, but um, we'd love to participate in those conversations. You guys have a more global perspective than we do of who's who's doing what. Um, but um, yeah, so with the supply chain, I am, I'm fortunate that I didn't see a connection at the time. Uh, when I extended my uh, my MBA because I didn't want to pay or I wasn't able to pay student loans with my first company, um, I did get a concentration in supply chain management from University of Michigan, um, uh, Dearborn. So I, I think that probably has has um, helped somewhat. And then having a background in manufacturing. Also, quite frankly, uh, Re3D, <laughs> I think, accidentally started a senior intern program, if anyone listening, uh, beginning with my dad, who, you know, uh, was working at uh, this fall at Detroit Thermal Systems. Oh, you were that kind of high school senior. <laughs> no, we have like we do that too. Um, but we're we're equal opportunity employers. But um, enough, there's been enough. a number of um, parents or um, individuals in the community. We, we Charlie gives tours to to um, senior living homes um, who just have a wealth of experience that really want to share their perspective on things. So. Um, my dad right now is Googling high-lows for us, propane, uh, three to 10,000 pounds uh, used. If you know of a deal, you can, you can, talk, to, uh, you can talk to Tony. Um, but we're, we're, we've been leaning on a lot of that, that senior insight as, as well as, you know, our own experiences and just, um, you know, asking the community too. Again, I think being open source and being bootstrapped uh, as a social enterprise, uh, we kind of have a unique relationship with a broader community and we're not afraid to ask for help. So again, it, it really is, a, a lot of input from a lot of people. I do have to ask because I had this problem. How do you? Ex- how did you explain Kickstarter to your parents? Um, well, I had explained <laughs> 3D printing too. And, yeah, uh, like, oh, well, that's fair. That's a better one. <laughs> for a while, bless her soul, if she listens to this, um, my mom was like, "How's the 3D going?" <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, when are you going to get a real job? No, um, but yeah. yeah, you know, Kickstarter. I think Kickstarter actually is pretty relatable to the family. Um, I had family members that, that backed it, you know, and, and for Christmas, they got the 3D printed base that, um, shout out to, um, was it Claude? It was Claude, was it Claudio's design, Benito's design? And he's like, dude, you just monetized my artwork. And I was like, oh crap. (laughs) But, um, um, yeah, no, they, I think Kickstarter was really cool for us because our families like got to participate in it or watch it grow, um, and kind of make starting a business seem. Um, a little bit more democratized. Um, whereas with my first venture, that was like uh, probably even harder to relate to. <laughs> right. And then afterwards, okay, so now you've got the Kickstarter. You managed to get the, the printers out the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you then turn it into a business? Or like at one point it was a business, is it a social enterprise? How did you first off do the you know, legal form, the correct kind of like, you know, is it a foundation? Is it a company? How did you figure that out? Um, yeah, so you'll notice um, our URL still says 3.3D.org because when we did the Jack Daniels Instructables Independence Day <laughs> solicitation, um, we really thought that we were, it was going to be like this open source project. And, you know, Creative Commons was becoming a thing and, you know, had, having a broad network. Um, we kind of thought we'd be in a similar vein. When we got, so for the first six months, um, January 2013 to August 2013, we were in LLC um, while I was in, in San Diego. And we really hadn't anticipated by the end of that six month or by the end of the Startup Chile experience to be in 20 plus countries and <laughs> having uh, this long list of orders we had to fulfill. So we became a C-Corp in, in August. Um, and between, uh, I think our campaign still launches off at March and I ran for 60 days. Um, during that campaign, you know, I had those moments where I was like, well, self, how are we going to do this? Um, and I was like, I'm going to phone a friend. So I called um, Pascal Finette, who we had hired at NASA to be a speaker and had been collaborating on these social entrepreneurship themes with me at NASA. And, and I asked him to be an advisor. And he said he would do it only if his good friend Tom Chi, who had uh, made Google Glass, 
if, if anyone knows him, and they do a lot of work in the social impact space, um, could also be an advisor um, as a sounding board. And so um, we had some meetings, you know, there were, there were five co-founders initially with, with Tom and Pascal, and they're like, well, looks like people want this. You found product, product market fit <laughs> accidentally. Um, and, and basically, the, the outcome was, why don't you run a Ponzi scheme and take pre-orders because other people have done it? <laughs> uh, well, and, um, and bicycle that money to scale the company and to see if there's interest beyond Kickstarter. Um, and so we, we did that um, for a, a couple years. And I guess we could be accused of doing that now because we're, we're currently um, getting about that 12-week lead time. We're working to close that down this year. Um, because of demand, but um, basically we we use that money to, for the capital outlay. Yeah, what are, we, like, are they doing? What you wanted them to do at the end of the day? Are they making toilets and? Um... Yeah, um, there are obviously those are my favorite customers. As well, right. what I call in my head the toilet hackers. I don't know if they'd all appreciate that, but there are a number of people in the um, in the sanitation and the the toilet industry vertical that do have a gigabyte. That makes me smile. Including, we had a um, an aerospace contractor that was um, at NASA Johnson Space Center um, that had access to a gigabot through his company. They were trying to make a better. I love this personally. They were trying to make a better toilet seat for women because you know, like a pressed fit is really important when trying to do something in space. And mm. um, the ladies um, recognized that maybe the the design at the time um, the contractor was considering more of like the male anatomy. Right. So. <laughs> Um, a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, anywho, there were, there was women astronauts that got to give active feedback on on a toilet seat for for women for the ISS, and um, we're really pleased to share that the one printed on Gigabot uh, was selected and prototyped. Um, so that's probably my favorite toilet hack, which is again not what originally we designed Gigabot for. Um, but uh, yeah, there there are a number of people in, in, in that industry that, that do have our system, whether they make the porta potties or composting toilets and LMICs or um, uh, more you know fancy pantsy toilets uh, with all the the robotic controls and, like and testing industry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, so there are quite a few. It's a, it's a bigger market than I realized. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what, what other people like buy your printers? I mean, it seems like it's pretty much all over the place, right? There's lots of different things, or yeah, it is. It is a broad-based technology. Um, again, you, my perspective, admittedly, is is more limited than yours and, and what I see. But um, when you think about large format, it uh, it is a slightly different market than maybe someone that's that's going to get a TAS Mini. Um, and you know, we're clearly in in the polymers vertical, which is which is getting interesting right now and a little spicy because. Um, you can do a lot with loaded materials we're learning with polymer binders. And then um, we do have uh, the, the grant that's now um, publicly shared with NASA to do the, the thermoset work with UTK. But it's a really broad market. We, we have a contract, a couple contracts right now with NASA looking at 3D printing from garbage going around you know, the moon and <laughs> thinking about what that might take to um, uh, individuals that are more near and dear to the communities originally we designed gigabyte around to um, uh, national labs around the world and then with gigabyte x the the so our, our first printer uh printed with filament it can be reclaimed or virgin um that's anything without the x on it in our portfolio and then um gigabyte x is as an fgf if you use granular fabrication printer that can take pellets or flake uh reclaimed or virgin so that's opening up a whole new segment with like Communities around the world where there's uh, public-private partnerships, usually between a university and a and a public stakeholder and a nonprofit, thinking about like closed-loop economies. Uh, so that's been really interesting to observe as well. So very diverse. So I would are say. Are you encouraging on the X series for people to make their own pellets, or are you trying to still maintain them within your your environment? We've always kind of had the viewpoint. I think it's the the training we had through Engineers Without Borders of providing the tool and letting people interpret that to their, mm -hmm. for their own application. So, um, you know, there are definitely, I think, as our team scales, people join Re3D as a teammate for various um, reasons. Uh, so some, you know, some teammates are definitely like very energetic around that. And, and we do like, it is always fun to watch um, people use the technology in a way that we envision. Um, but it's really up to them. In fact, what's interesting with pellet printing right now, which um, again, kind of like, Gigabyte with a filament printer we launched on Kickstarter and, and found this other market is um, 
there's a dual use opportunity. We we were thinking about garbage, obviously, um, but in plastic waste, shredded or pelletized, uh, whether people do it themselves or you know buy it from a reseller or uh, a processor of it. Um, but uh, you know the Kickstarter campaign for that was was really small. We released it just to see if people would buy a few as part of our SBIR award um, for marketing. But um, what we didn't anticipate, especially during the pandemic, is pellet printing allows you to print with materials that um, maybe maybe they're just like really hydroscopic or um, they desiccate quickly or can't be extruded or it's just not practical. Um, so it's purchased a lot um, by national labs and, and universities and materials testing, but also it allows you to print with um, some like TPUs and TPEs that would be very difficult to use in filament form. And that market segment is really interesting because it has a lot of application, whether it's, you know, EV and, and automotive to um, also it, it allows you to print with materials that are loaded, say maybe up to 80% by weight with, with other things. Um, so it has, has a really interesting opportunity. Um, and then with both the filament printer and, and the pellet printer, going back to your question about where there's concentration, as, as you've probably heard in other interviews recently, automotive really lit up in the last year more than we anticipated so there's a uh, we had a lot of um, aerospace defense space um, uh, customers and, and government customers in the beginning about 25 percent I would say of our user base uh, but over the last 10 years now and most recently in the last year and a half um, automotive has become definitely the biggest vertical that's consistently buying either the filament printer or the pellet printer well, I mean, you have such a big print area that I can, that's, yeah, I can see that's why they would want that, especially with Yeah, you, you can batch. Problem. Yeah. If you want to make like a custom gasket now, you could with a pellet printer. You couldn't mm -hmm. previously, or you'd have to outsource. Yeah. One thing I'm really excited about is this really large, the Gigalab thing, right? That's like, yeah. that's like a, a container filling system, right? It's kind of like a custom solution. We're realizing, again, this was another, um, just kind of walking the dog with a community that we kind of stumbled into um, opportunity. So, you know, as, as, as many of us did um, in 2020, we were producing PPE and that did allow um, some of us too, to receive follow on contracts to support on demand manufacturing. And one of the requests that we asked is if, uh, you know, when everyone was at capacity is how we make our technology more deployable. And especially with Gigabot X, because, um, what sometimes maybe we could do about our job explaining in, in, in our um, messaging is if you're interested in printing from waste or shredded waste, um, it's more than just the printer, right? You have to have a way to reduce the particle size. And um, like with, and with PET materials like that, you, you've got to dry it. You may have to sift it. Then you have to put it in the printer. Um, and as communities were trying to buy this to figure out circular models, um, that requires quite a big footprint. And then I'm learning every day about the power draw and how you balance that. <laughs> and um, so we started to get some requests, like if there was a, a more uh, deployable way to, to offer that um, footprint. And so um, against our National Science Foundation, um, SBIR uh, phase one and phase two, which allowed us to invest all the non-dilutive resources into developing Gigabot X as a, a bridge of Gigabot, the pellet printer, uh, the filament printer um, that spun out the pellet printer using the NSF money, um, the Puerto Rican Science and Research Trust. So we, we've had an office in Puerto Rico since, our presence in Puerto Rico since 2017, um, offered us a, um, a match from the territory against that grant to containerize that footprint because we've been talking to stakeholders all over the island about where Gigabot X could have value. Um, and there's a lot of interest. Um, there's water bottles that are discarded all back up from um, when the hurricanes came in 2017 and, and, and um, that are still sitting on, on farmland. And so there's real interest in uh, repurposing those water bottles for things on the island. And then, then there's a lot of pharmaceutical companies that have a lot of waste, right? And they have to pay to, to dispose of it properly off the island. Um, and so there's an opportunity, too, to, to use that waste to create local value and, and more jobs because there's... Um, there's a there's a, a brain drain in some of the areas there. So through the trust, and that is shipping. Um, hopefully next week, we're really excited about it. It's a, a containerized solution with all the hardware that we think is required to process water bottles and some of the pharmaceutical waste. Um, and it'll be wired into shore powered engine four in Balmain. I'm sure we'll be sharing. Uh, they'll be sharing it online and and all of our learnings there. That then inspired um, 
because of the PPE crisis and, and the conversations we were having with other federal stakeholders, uh, we learned quickly that one container is a little tight. A two-container configuration that would be um, uh, off-grid, whether it's wind or um, solar. So we have a couple contracts now exploring that opportunity um, as well, and then we'll be um, doing those pilots next year and the year after to figure out, you know, where this has value. Um, to your point, you know, it's still uh, low volume in terms of processing waste and printing something. And I've been wondering lately with the community if, if this continues to be explored, if maybe the whole container is a printer and you're doing higher throughput um, objects or larger objects. There are yeah, definitely really people thinking generally, that. Yeah. But that is exciting in general, yeah. No, but also generally, I mean, I think if you look at the U.S. military, they, they use billions of, of, of water bottles, right? If they go anywhere, mm -hmm. they'll use billions and billions of them. So that's yeah. also another thing. And just, yeah, just only the water bottle thing is, I think, could be huge. Also for festivals and things like that, for example. <laughs> yeah, we, we've we've um, had a couple conversations with with ACL Austin City Limits around that, as well as um, stadiums. We have a, a relationship with Barclays through Unreasonable and thinking about like, you know, if if you were to have the solution near the Barclays Stadium, one, it, there's an interesting upside. One, you you can create jobs, um, but two, it's it's a great way. I'm really passionate about project based learning to make that te technology more accessible um, to give people who are motivated a way to to learn these tools um, on demand. But we do have a contract both with the Army and the Air Force um, through the SBIR program. Um, right now, we're, we are working on these demonstrations. And as you might anticipate, there's a lot of learning to be had. So if anyone's listening to this um, and, and you're curious about part of this problem, we'd love to um, chat with you. Um, whether it's the civil engineering of the containers as, as we're learning more about wind shear and all the math that goes into it. Um, to the actual deployment and thinking through, you know, the, the safety and the education materials that go with it. There's a, there's a lot of learnings to be had. Uh, we're, we are hiring for materials um, scientists as well, but one of the waste streams that has been prioritized is water bottles. Um, and so we're, we're talking to different people in the field that have also um, been thinking about this as well. But if you're passionate about RPET and a polymer scientist, I'd, I'd love to pick your brain. Are you, pick, are you focused on PET? just because it's what all the damn water bottles are made out of. Uh, I'm just curious if there are other materials that you're hopeful in the near future. With the Air Force Academy, we actually harvested waste from their cafeteria as well as failed prints. Um, you know, a lot of us that are in large format feel a little bit guilty because, you know, if you do support materials, a lot of plastic. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, not a big, little mistakes on a desktop printer are big mistakes on a big printer are big fails. Yeah. And we've all done right. a bird's nest. Um, yeah. So thinking about that, um, or particularly one of the applications we're exploring with it, um, thinking about the Air Force is, um, you know, they have, we have a, uh, we've, we've already, some of these, um, so we already had a couple of gigabots um, at the university they purchased, I think, through GSA um, in the filament-based printers. And, um, you know, each semester they, they produce um, drones and um, UASs that the students build. And then, you know, what happens at the end of that? Um, so thinking about, like, all the teachers that are printing things every semester, like what if you could then grind it up and then using the pellet printer, explore and teach printing from plate or study the science of weathering and degradation and multiple thermal cycles, which is what some of our um, academic peers are doing to print something else that you could use um, that has value. So uh, we are looking a lot at failed prints, um, everything from polycarbonate, ABS, uh, PLA, you know, the, the typical usual vendors there that are in volume to obviously water bottles, which is really ambitious and we're learning a ton. And, and I'm, I really hope that as other people are exploring this too, that there's a lot of knowledge sharing and, and we can find a way to help other passionate individuals avoid all the mistakes that we've made <laughs> in that process um, to looking at, um, you know, other forms of packaging for food waste. Um, looking at uh, applications maybe where you could repurpose like dunnage from packaging waste and, and manufacturing scenarios. Um, so it really runs the gamut. What we're learning is not all garbage is the same, including water bottles. There's a lot of um, yeah. differences wow. in, the, in the polymer chemistry between them or even distributors or manufacturers of bottles for the same brand, which is kind of crazy. Um, and, you know, every geography has a different need. So I think the conundrum for us, and and I'm sure you know the industry will have to really muse on it a lot together in the in the ecosystem is, 
you know, where does this make sense? Where does it not? Does it stay broad based or is Re3D's role and just being driven by um, opportunity to create social impact? Do we really just focus on one? Um, so there's a lot of unknowns there. We're also learning a lot about screws. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, ultimately the pellet printer is, you know, a big screw mounted vertically. And, um, you know, is that swappable? Is it is it locked in? So, yeah, if, if you want to be part a, of this conversation, a, no, there's a lot of opportunity. It's a really hard problem, this whole screw. Yeah. Like, injection yeah. molding screws all the time and stuff like that. But to do it <laughs> where you're essentially extruding a filament, so to speak, and then directly going into a feed head and then trying to print it out. I imagine. Oh, no, we just we grind it up and throw it in there. Oh, you just throw it right in. Okay, fair enough. Um, <laughs> there's a better way. <laughs> we were trying to cut out the middleman there, but it's, uh, it's, okay. it's tough. It's got, a, it's got a long way to go. <laughs> so, no, if you, if you think about X customer, we're always bugging you yeah. to learn how what you're doing and to get feedback. Because um, this is the only way we're going to push the needle forward. Uh, we always say, like, how do you need an elephant one bite at a time? You got to start somewhere. Yeah, okay. And there's a guy called Shervon Bucker, by the way, who's like the best guy in the world on this. And he makes nearly all the nozzles and extruder equipment for the large scale 3D printers. Love to chat with him. Yeah, don't totally get in touch with him. He's amazing as well. Okay, so do you believe the big vision? Like literally like at one point we're gonna put one of these containers in somewhere like a austere place, uh, like you know, like in Africa, somewhere in the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. and then boom, these guys are gonna be able to make all their own stuff or a lot of their own stuff. Do you believe in that kind of thing or is it more nuanced than that? Um, it is nuanced, but we have been as because of the models worked out for us. Um, as long as the community appreciates where the technology is, um, you know, we've traditionally for the ten years, and, and maybe that's what's kept us solvent. Um, I don't know. I guess it, it we'll, we'll see how how it plays out. But we've always um, been open to releasing a product in, in beta um, while we're we're co-developing with the community. Um, so with, with that in mind, you know, we, we had a very small Kickstarter campaign. Basically, um, in our NSF phase one, they wanted to know if there was a market for, you know, for phase two and, and beyond. So it was a demonstration to kind of get some outside feedback. Um, so we, we did a Kickstarter campaign around Gigabot X and have some early users there. And then we've had it in, in beta um, for almost, almost three years. Uh, we, we just formally released as of January 1, Gigabot X2, it's called, which is more dialed in. Um, but all of those customers have an opportunity to contrib- contribute to the knowledge base and, and to gather once a month. We're really trying to see if we can get a small community sharing with each other. And uh, some of those users, to answer your question in a very long-winded format, um, are in LMICs, lower middle income countries, um, that are thinking about circular models. So they, there already are Gigabot Xs in some of the communities that are more um, parallel to what we had originally um, conceived it for. And there is a GigaLab going to Puerto Rico. That'll be the first of, um, hopefully, um, what's that? Let me let me do some public math here. Uh, seven soon. Um, and we do have conversations with organizations thinking about some of those austere environments and are doing some early concepts with them. Um, and and um, in the scenarios that we originally wanted to um, support. So yeah, that is that is underway. But it, it's a lot of work, and we are hiring. <laughs> that's exciting it's very exciting and uh, i think that there's also a lot of economic potential there apart from the charity thing i think you know just taking a place that doesn't have the ability to make a lot of things and giving them the ability to make a lot of stuff uh out of stuff that's essentially free is a huge economic uh, uh you know uh, opportunity like you've got you know many hundreds of millions of people that do not have access to a lot of manufacturing yeah yeah it'll it'll be interesting to see what with what they make and um and and where they take it uh you know stories gonna be ongoing i think <laughs> and you're clearly doing something right because you guys survived and most of your cohorts cohorts from that time period did not mm-hmm. so kudos on that aspect as well it is um, incredibly humbling and we talk about it almost every day especially after the, the last couple of years um within the team and the community it's I'm really an awe and so thankful it's awesome yeah all right and what, what do you hope to achieve in the next five years or so where do you hope to go yeah you know we through gigabot x we hope we we always have this north star to try to help support creating 500 jobs through second and third offsets um in five years um but i think in the next five years what what i suspect is um we'll have better codified where 
gig about X is an FGF printer if it's, if it's in that ecosystem and what it's intended to do and not do. Um, we are in the process right now. Um, if you sign up for our newsletter or you see anything online of exploring, uh, right now we're leasing our, our 10,000 foot space, but we're looking at an opportunity to buy our own, uh, well, buy, excuse me, same thing, um, to buy or um, build, excuse me, um, uh, a larger factory where we can continue to give tours and just scale on what we're doing. So in the next five years, hopefully we'll be hunkered down in our own space that uh, will be a place that you can drop in and, and take tours. Um, right now, I think we're sitting at around 70 countries, but um, we want to continue to expand the opportunity to be in um, global markets. We're onboarding one to two people a week. So hopefully in the next five years, we've figured out like, where that threshold is of, of how many teammates we need to, to support the community. Um, we would like to have US-made stepper motors and to have a really tight control with multiple vendors um, locally around our supply chain. And then um, through the NSF convergence opportunity we're participating in now with um, the Austin Habitat for Humanity Restore and our peers in Australia, um, that award if we got the phase two would um, hopefully take us into um, an opportunity in five years, we've, we've really um, figured out the lifecycle value analysis with UT and, and the design aspect that integrates with Gigabot X. Um, and then, you know, we're always doing super cool space stuff. We're really honored to have the contracts we have. But within the next five years, um, you know, we'd love to see the, um, you know, be supporting flight hardware that's thinking about circular models um, as well and, and figuring out, you know, where, where we fit in that ecosystem. But most importantly, we're hoping that we're still chatting with you, and um, I didn't give him a shout out, but but part of the way we were able to navigate the supply chain over the last couple of years has been crossing over to a, a new 32-bit PCB um, uh, and working with with our Johnny and his crew at um, Ultimachine. Um, so if anyone's looking for a U.S.-made supplier for that board, that's been really helpful for us, and and he's um, he's dialed in his supply chain. So. Um, you know, hopefully we're continuing to scale across good industry partners, such as them. I think there is a U.S.-based separate motor supplier. It's called Cole Morgan or some Cole Morgan or something like that. I'm I, sure I welcome might... all the intros. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they do like, I think they do like higher end stuff, but I think they, I'm pretty sure they're well, in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's out of my price point. But yeah. Yeah, it's, but it's probably it's, not it out of exists. your price point. <laughs> <laughs> anyway hey hey thank you so much for being here today Samantha. i think you've got an incredible story and tell it kind of like you're kind of blundering from one thing to the next it's yeah, completely random it's, it's a really incredibly really amazing story so thank you so much for for context like i'm blundering but the, the team is like they really got their act together Okay, okay. Thank you for being so wonderfully humble, but uh, I, I love what you guys are doing, and that's really fantastic. And uh, yeah, thank you for being here today. Yeah, please sign up and take a virtual tour. <laughs> All right, cool, cool. And Max, thank you for being here as well. Always, always fascinating, George. Thank you for hosting. And thank you for uh, listening. This is another uh, 3D Pod, and have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.